Whoa. How you doing this morning? You guys look fantastic. Thank you, brother. It's uh, good to be here. It's good to be here on time. Um, first service, I was time challenged. I, uh, you ever do this where you hit the snooze button and it turns out it was not the snooze button? Yeah, well, that's what happened to me this morning. And uh, so I, uh, I hear an alarm go off, and I assume that's my alarm that I shut off five minutes ago. Uh, and Shelly goes, Greg, aren't you supposed to be at church? And I'm like, oh, honey, no, no, that's my snooze button. I got plenty of time. It's, you know, just after 7 o'clock. She goes, no, it's quarter to nine. <laughs> so uh, I call Mary, and I say, stretch it, stretch it. Uh, this could be interesting. And I, I have to repent. I broke every speed limit. And... Uh, as obey the laws of the land did not apply to me this morning. Um, so I, I, I sort of remember preaching the first service. It's kind of foggy to me, actually. I was still kind of in a, in a sleep. But uh, when we are weak, he is strong. When we are tired, then he uh, supplies energy, and it all turned out well. All right? So we're here. Oh, before I forget, let me move this forward here. Um, for those who are interested, uh, NDY, the famous rock band that I'm a part of that raises money for Haiti, will be at O'Gara's this, this Friday. Uh, and Eustace the Dragon will be opening for us at 8.30 and will come out about 9.30. So if you want to have a lot of fun and raise money for Haiti, come and be part of that. It'll be awesome. And Paul Eddie does not have a Hitler mustache like that uh, portrayal. Uh, don't let that mustache scare you away. Uh, he is ugly, but not that ugly. So uh, come and be part of the service. We're going to have a yeah, any, any question you have, it'll be, it'll be a good time. So we've been hovering here on Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. What is this, about the fifth, sixth week on one verse? We're never in much of a hurry because this is a very important verse. Uh, we're entitling this message, The Cross and the Tree. You may have heard of the series, The Cross and the Sword. Well, this is not that. This is The Cross and the Tree. Hopefully we won't drive out a fourth of the congregation with this sermon, but we'll see. Um, I am good at that. And so the verse we're looking at is Colossians 3, verse 14, where Paul says, Above all, everyone say above all. Above all, all, put on love. Above all, put on love. Nothing's to be above love. Nothing's to be alongside of love. Nothing's to compete with it, qualify it, or anything. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together. This is the all-important most important uh, distinguishing mark of the disciple, our main witness to the world. It's the all or nothing of the kingdom. Above all, clothe yourselves with this kind of love. And the love that Paul is talking about is defined in the Bible by pointing us to the cross. So 1 John three sixteen says, We know love by this. It's not a warm, sentimental, gushy feeling. We know love by this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. While we were yet enemies, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That is love. That's the kind of love that God is. John says God is love, and he defines love by pointing us to the cross. The cross is the kind of love that God is. And so cross-like love is what it looks like wherever God reigns. Wherever there's the kingdom of God, it's going to look like Calvary. Jesus Christ giving his life for the very people who are crucifying him. This is the kingdom. We are participating in the kingdom and manifesting the kingdom to the degree that our lives individually and we collectively look like Jesus laying down our life for our enemies. To the degree that we sacrifice for others, give of our own resources to others. 
to the degree that we ascribe unconditional and unsurpassable worth to others. And because it's unconditional, that means that we don't pick and choose who gets it. It applies to everybody, our friends and even our foes. To the degree that we do that, we are manifesting the reign of God. And to the degree that we don't do that, we're not. In fact, Paul says, as we saw the last couple weeks, 1 Corinthians 13, that you can do magnificent things, but if it's not motivated by cross-like love, and if it doesn't further cross-like love, it's altogether worthless. You can speak in tongues, and that's wonderful. You can have faith that can move mountains, that's wonderful. You can have all knowledge and understand all mysteries, and that's fantastic. You can do great altruistic things. You can win the lottery and give every penny away to charity. But if it's not motivated by cross-like love, and if it doesn't further cross-like love, Paul says it is worthless. It's a clanging symbol. It's nothing. It's nutty. It's caca. It's excrement. It's refuge. It's, 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 blech. it's just religion. We don't need more religion. Uh, it's all about, it's all about manifesting this kind of love. This is the center of what we are called to do. If this gets done, everything else that needs to get done will get done. If this doesn't get done, then nothing else we do is, is, is worth even talking about. Unless we're going to do this, we might as well pack up and go home and be done with it because it's a waste of time. So Paul goes so far as to say, Galatians chapter 5, that the only thing that counts is faith working through love. The only thing that counts, the only thing that registers on God's worthometer is faith working through love. The, the, the word there for working in Greek is energeo. Energeo. We get the word energy from it. And so you could almost translate this passage. The only thing that counts is faith that energizes love. And faith is about trusting God. And so when we have a trust in God to be the source of our worth and the source of our life, the source of our identity the source of our self-esteem, the motivation for everything we do, to that degree, we'll find ourselves energized to love. And love always looks like Calvary. But if we're not getting all of our worth from, from, from God, and if the love of God isn't the source of our identity and, and well-being, to the degree that we're rather trying to suck pathetic life off, off of idols and, and, and get life from what we achieve or who we impress or blah, 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 well, to that degree, we're not going to be energized to love. We're going to be energized by hunger. If we're not getting our life from God, our soul is going to be hungry. So instead of loving others and overflowing towards others, we're going to be using others to feed ourselves because we're going to be hungry. And to the degree that we're not trusting God to judge the world, I've seen this the last two weeks, we're not trusting God to right all wrongs, uh, to, to carry out whatever justice needs to be carried out. If we're not trusting God for that, then we'll, we'll take over that job description. In fact, that's the main way that we feed ourselves. We're not trusting God as our source of worth. Well, then we're not going to be trusting God to judge the world because we're going to be the judges of the world. And that's how we give ourselves life. As I I mentioned several weeks ago, uh, as I was in that mall 16 years ago and uh, found myself gossiping about people in my brain, every single gossip word, every contrast I made was a way of feeding myself. I was feeding myself. However pathetic my life is, at least I'm not as pathetic as that person. Though I maybe am not sinless, I'm not as sinful as that person. Though I'm a little overweight, at least I'm not like that person. Uh, though I may I'm not the perfect parent, at least I'm not like that person. Though I maybe judge once in a while, I'm not as bad as that person. And uh, every one of those judgments is a way of feeding myself. Check out your own life. Every time you contrast yourself with another, it's a way of giving yourself some sense of worth that at least you're not as bad as that person. 
we feed ourselves. And this is the opposite of what love is. What it's showing is that to the, unless we're feasting on the love of God that's revealed on the cross, unless we're feasting on the love of God revealed on the cross, we'll find ourselves inevitably and invariably feeding off of others. We will become religious parasites. Phariseeism is a form of being a parasite. A parasite is something that lives by sucking life off of others. Uh, to the degree that we're not feasting on the love of God, we feast off of others. And we detract worth to ascribe some worth to ourselves. And this is why I've been saying the last two weeks that the opposite of the love that we're called to manifest, that's what, it's what churches tend to specialize in. It's, it's what religion is all about. It's judgment. It's judgment. Love is about ascribing worth to others at cost to yourself. That's what God does to us on Calvary. And that's what we're called to do to every person that we see. Every person we think about. But judgment is ascribing worth to yourself at cost to others. The exact opposite. Instead of ascribing worth to others at cost to ourselves, we're ascribing worth to ourselves at cost to others. We're feeding off of others. And so the opposite of, of, of love is this judgment. We can't possibly love the way God calls us to love, which is our most fundamental commission. It's what we're most centrally empowered to do. We can't possibly love the way God loves on Calvary unless we're trusting God to be judge. To judge the world. We're leaving all judgment to God. He'll take care of it. If we die, we die, but we trust God to, to even right that wrong. God will, 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 will take care of that. Our only job is to agree with him that every person we see was worth Jesus dying for. They have unsurpassable worth. Uh, to, to do that, we've got to trust God to, to, to be the judge. When we judge, we are playing God. When we judge, we're acting as though it was appropriate for us to sit on the throne and place ourselves in the, in the, above others to be the arbiter of good taste and good parenting and, and godliness and all the rest. We're acting like God. That's why James says, listen to this, in chapter 4, James says that there is one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and destroy. And who is that one lawgiver and judge? It ain't me. It ain't you. So he says, but who are you that you judge your neighbor? When you judge your neighbor, you are taking over God's job as the one lawgiver and judge. When you judge another, it's a way of saying, God, you're not doing your job. I got, you, you need my help. I, I, I got I to help you out here. Uh, and that's the one thing that we are not commissioned to do. Uh, we act as though we get to define people's worth um, rather than, than God defining people's worth on Calvary. And so now... To the degree that we judge, look at this. Instead of confessing that we are the worst of sinners, which is what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 7, and Paul commands us to do in 1 Timothy 1, rather than confessing that we are the worst of sinners, we act as though we're the least of sinners. Which is why we, of course, can stand in judgment over others, and the world needs us to be the moral police of the world and to be imposing laws on others, because we are the morally superior, wise people, right? We're the least of sinners. In fact, worse than that, not only are we not confessing that we're the worst of sinners, we're acting like we're God. And therefore, we have the right to uh, control society and impose laws on other people's sin. Not our own sin, of course, because our sins are the minor sins. Their sins are the major sins. They're the ones who are a threat to society. We need to impose laws on them. That's why religious people, people who get life from religion, have always tended to have this impulse to control society and to run society. And the minute we do that, we stop loving the way God calls us to love. 
If we're ever going to love the way God loves, we have to leave all judgment. We have to have faith that God can judge the world. But we'll only have faith in God as judge if we're having faith that he is our source of life and worth and significance. So we're not walking through this world out of a center of hunger that needs to be fed by, by feasting off of others, but rather we're walking through the world out of a sense of fullness that can now overflow with this love towards others. Uh, to, 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 to live in love, we've got to leave all judgment to God. Look what Paul says. I love this passage in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And we avenge ourselves whenever we just reserve for our right, uh, the, the right to judge others, uh, when it's in our self-interest to do so. Never avenge yourselves. And he's talking to people who are before too long going to find themselves fed to lions and tarred and set on fire by Nero and, 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 and others in the, in the Roman office. Uh, he, he's talking to folks who, who uh, would be, by normal human standards, justified in retaliating. But he says, never Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, Paul says, no, instead of judging, instead of, instead of thinking that you're the judge of the world, even when you're threatened, instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And he's talking about the kind of enemies that arrest you and feed you and your children to lions. Give them something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, this is at the center of what we are called to do. We overcome evil with good. We overcome evil the way Jesus did. Um, We can only do that if we're leaving all judgment to God. The minute we reserve for our rights, for for ourselves, the right to judge others, then, then the moment an enemy threatens us or our loved ones or something we love, We will feel justified doing whatever is necessary to stop them. The minute we feel threatened, we will judge that their life is worth less than our life. And therefore, we have the right to take it. If we're going to love the way Jesus loves, where he gives his life for the very people who are crucifying, we've got to leave all judgment to God. When we avenge ourselves, now we're not overcoming evil with good. Rather, evil is overcoming good. Because now we get sucked into this mindless, tit-for-tat cycle of violence that defines world history. You hit me, well then I'll defend myself and hit you back. And then you hit me twice, I'll hit you four times. And now we're just caught up in this tit-for-tat, merry-go-round spiral of violence violence that has characterized uh, uh, the world from, from the moment of the fall. The kingdom of God is about a group of people saying, we opt out of this evaluation game. We opt out of the judgment game. We opt out of the retaliation game. We opt out of the violence game. We opt out of the hatred game. And rather, we put all our eggs in this one basket. We trust God to be the source of our life even if we die. And we trust God to be the judge of the world even if it, if it costs us our life. And therefore, we are the people who are, are going to respond to evil with good. We'll respond to evil by loving our enemies, by giving them something to drink when they're thirsty, and something to eat when they're, when, they're, when, they're, when they're hungry will be a people who live like, look like, love like, serve like Jesus Christ when he gives up his life for enemies on the cross. That, folks, is the kingdom of God. That, that defines the kingdom of God. It's about God's way of overcoming evil. The only way we'll do it is if we're trusting all judgment to God. Now, the best illustration of this uh, is the story of Adam and Eve in the fall in Genesis. And in fact, this story illustrates that judgment isn't just one sin among others. 
It is the foundational sin of the Bible. It is the original sin of the Bible. This is original sin. Because it most fundamentally contradicts the main thing that humans are created to do, which is to love the way God loves. Um, Now this story, uh, scholars debated endlessly as to how literal or figurative it should be taken. Uh, To what degree is the story a snapshot of history, like a photograph what you would, what would have seen if you were there? Uh, to, or to what degree is it more like an expressionistic portrait that's meant to draw some of the meaning of a historical event out? Uh, to what degree is it more like a parable? And the debate goes on and on and on. Right now it's raging uh, in evangelicalism. But it's not a new debate at all. Some people think that this is just a, a new debate because of the encroachment of liberalism or something. But as a matter of fact, you find early church fathers debating this. And even before them, uh, we find rabbis debating this. To what degree was the snake a literal snake? And the tree, is it meant to be a symbol or a literal tree? So this is not a new debate. What we need to see is that there is nothing that hangs on that issue when it comes to understanding the central point of this story. The central point of the story, it's, it's, that debate is completely irrelevant to the central point of the story. And having read a little bit about this debate, in fact, quite a bit about this debate, I'm sometimes amazed by how folks can be so invested on on engaging in this debate, and yet they miss the central point of the story. The central point of the story, however literal or figurative you take it, is 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 an obviously God-breathed, profound, insightful, revolutionary revelation. It's absolutely absolutely incredible, and it addresses this topic that we're addressing here this morning. Um, To see the central point of the story, you got to start with the original covenant that God made with humans. God said to the man, and the word Adam, by the way, is simply the word for man or for, for, for human, uh, showing that uh, this, this Adam is a, is a paradigm, a paradigmatic human. The Lord commanded the man, you may eat, freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of that tree you're going to die. This is God's original covenant. It's very simple. He says, here's the deal. I want a relationship with you. I want a relationship with you. And uh, for that to work, trust me to provide for you. You can eat of all the trees of the garden. Trust my provision, but honor my one prohibition. And the one prohibition is represented by this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why would the one prohibition be called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Wouldn't you think the prohibition would have been the tree of debauchery or the tree of licentiousness or covetousness or greed or, or something of the sort? Why? What's so evil about the, the knowing good and evil? Well, you, you begin to understand why that tree is called that when you look at the nature of the temptation that the serpent uh, uh, afflicts Eve with in the next chapter. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent shows up and says, you're not going to die. God's a liar. Because God knows that when you eat of that, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delight to the eyes and it was desired to make one wise. She's now looking at this tree uh, through the lens of her deception. And so she took the fruit and ate of it and gave some to her husband. And uh, the rest, of course, is history. Now notice here, the serpent tempts Eve by saying you can be like God. What's interesting is that Adam and Eve were already like God. You look at Genesis 1, they were made in the image of God. And so what this narrative is showing us is that 
There's a way in which human beings are supposed to be like God and a way in which human beings are not supposed to try to be like God. And the way human beings are not supposed to try to be like God, it has to do with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What, what the narrative is showing us is that we are created to love the way God loves. That's the purpose for all creation. I said this several weeks ago. The purpose of everything is for the creation at every level to reflect the love of the triune God. And so humans are created to love like God loves. That's what's revealed on the cross. But we're never to try to be like God in terms of what we think we know, in terms of our wisdom. We're never supposed to try to be like God in thinking that we know enough uh, to apply the categories of good and evil to people's lives. You'd have to know someone exhaustively to know really, truly, and accurately how good and evil applies to their lives. But see, we human beings, we're not all-knowing. Only an all-knowing, omniscient God is in a position to judge. We are not omniscient. We are not all-knowing. And on top of that, we're fallen, so our perception of things is jaded. We always judge out of our own self-interest. And so when it comes to, uh, unless a person has invited us to have wisdom about their life and to speak into their life, to discern things, and we all need that, by the way, uh, but unless a person has invited us in to have that discernment, our attitude towards all people at all times unconditionally is to know just one thing. And this is what Paul says in, in Corinthians. When he says to the Corinthians, I've resolved to know nothing about you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's only one thing I know. Now, notice that Paul has to resolve to know this. It's a decision he makes. He could think he knows a lot of other things. There's a lot of things he, he, he could maybe kind of know, but he resolves, he makes a decision. that I am only going to know one thing about you, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And folks, this is to be our attitude towards every person we see. That there's only one thing we know about them. Unless we're living life in relationship with them and they've invited us in to help them live out the kingdom, we only know this one thing, and that is that they are worth Jesus Christ dying for. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so our one job is to reflect the unsurpassable and unconditional worth that they have, that God says that they have. Our job is to reflect that by how we think about them, how we speak about them, how we interact with them, to manifest to our agreement with God about that. Because we are not judges. We're little human fallen beings who know next to nothing. We are really very, very, very ignorant. And so we just have to agree with God that what God says about every human being is in fact uh, the worth that every human being has. Live in love. Whenever we judge, no, 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 whenever we judge, we're really usurping God's opinion. God says that that person has unsurpassable worth. But when we're judging, gossiping about people in our mind, we're really saying, no, what, what, I, what I see about them is more important than what you say about them. Yeah, 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 yes, 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 blah, blah, blah. Jesus died for them. They have unsurpassable worth. But man, do they got a big butt. Yeah, Jesus died for them. They got unsurpassable worth. But man, that, they are gross parents. Oh, that's despicable the way they interact. That's just gross. What a judger that person is. I can't believe that person, blah, 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 blah. And we're really saying, my opinion based on what I see is more important than your opinion, God on the basis of what you said on Calvary. Folks, we'll only be able to love the way God calls us to love if we shut up that accuser in our brain, silence him, and agree with God that his opinion is in fact the true opinion every person has unsurpassable worth. Because unlike God, we cannot judge and love at the same time. We can think of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil as God's loving, no trespassing sign. It's God's way of saying, here's the deal, you guys. Uh, it'll be it'll be Eden. It'll be a wonderful paradise if you'll simply love the way I love 
and leave all judgment to me. Don't try to go there. It's a no trespassing sign. Don't try to think that you know what I, what only I can know. Don't try to judge. Honor my prohibition as you trust me for this provision. And it's significant. The story is so profound and insightful, you guys, on so many levels. But notice that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, along with the tree of life, is placed in the middle of the garden. It says in Genesis 2 that in the middle of the garden, at the center of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what I think that's saying to us is this, that life as God intends it, life in Eden, that's what Eden represents, Life as God intends it revolves around, is centered on, is based on our trusting God's provision, which is the tree of life, and our honoring the prohibition, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything but everything depends on this. And we can only do the one if we do the other. We'll only honor the prohibition if we're trusting God to be our our total source of life. Uh, Unless we're feasting on the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, we will invariably feast on people. We can't help it. We're, the accuser has made us accusers. We become addicted to this kind of judgment. Uh, and to be freed of that, we have to get all of our life and worth and significance from God and then trust him to be the judge, leaving all judgment to him. Now, now when Jesus comes into this world, what he does is he, he reverses the fall. He gives us this new covenant, which is really the restoration of the first covenant. And so Jesus comes, he reverses the fall, he reinstates the provision of life, the tree of life, and he empowers us to uh, honor the prohibition, uh, to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to abstain from judgment. At the root of the whole thing we saw in Genesis is this, the way the, the serpent suckered us into his civil war against God is that he inflicted Eve with an ugly picture of God, a pathetic picture of God, a God who's threatened. At the root of all sin is a, is a, a misconception and, and a, a, an untrustworthy picture of God. A God you can't trust. And that's why we try to get life on our own. We don't trust this God. And so what Jesus does, when he shows up, is he gives us a true picture of God. A God we can trust. And this is what the cross is all about. The cross is the thematic center of everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus did. And the cross reveals, it's the quintessential supreme revelation of God's character. So Jesus reveals that God is love, and love looks like Calvary. Love looks like the cross. This defines God's eternal nature, the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout eternity. And so Jesus reveals a God who's altogether trustworthy, altogether lovely, altogether beautiful. There's not a malicious streak in him. There's not a, a cruel streak in him. No, he's light in him. There is no darkness. He reveals a God that we can put our total trust in, a God you can invite in to the, to the ugliest parts of your being, and you don't have to hide the way Adam and Eve did. You don't have to hide from this God. You can trust that this God's for you, not against you, never against you. He's on your side. He gives his life for you. While you were yet an enemy of his, while you were yet sick, He knows everything about you, and yet he loves you with a perfect, unsurpassable love anyways. And so Jesus reveals a God that we can finally trust once again. And because he's a God we can trust once again, he's a God that we can trust to get all of our worth and significance and value and security from. Uh, And so Jesus is at one and the same time, Jesus on the cross now is at one and the same time, the revelation of the true picture of God, and therefore the revelation of the provision of life. Jesus is, the cross is, our tree of life. 
And that is to say that the cross represents, that love of God revealed on the cross uh, is, is something we need to allow to define us to the core of our being, to let in to every fiber of our being so that it becomes our identity, our worth, our significance, and our security. Because only then can we let go of the addiction to feast on people and become little accusers and live in the, the love that he calls us to live in. That's why Jesus says sometimes crazy things like this. In John 6, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Pretty gross analogy if you think about it. I want your blood. My flesh is food indeed. Um, but he's, he, he's using a, a metaphor that would be absolutely, I mean, it's a cannibalistic metaphor, and it would be absolutely appalling to first century Jews. It's kind of offensive yet to this day. But he's doing it for a reason. He, he's, he's shocking them to pay attention. He's using shocking graphic imagery. And, and what he's saying here is, is simply this, that my flesh, which I am going to have sacrificed on the cross, and my blood, which is to be sacrificed on the, on the cross, this is the food for your soul. This is the, the, the one thing that you need to, to eat. The love of God that's revealed when Jesus offers up his flesh and, and has his blood shed. That, that, that love, that perfect, unconditional, unsurpassable love. When God ascribes absolute, unconditional worth to us while we were yet sinners, that is to be our source of everything, as we just sang uh, 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 a moment ago. Uh, it, it, we, we have to ingest this. We have to eat this. When you eat food, it becomes the nourishment. It becomes part of your body. It becomes part of who you are. See, it's one thing to know Jesus. It's another thing to eat him. We need to be Jesus eaters. Uh, we need to ingest Jesus, take him into the, every nook and cranny of our life, especially the dark spots, the, 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 the ugly places, the, the secret closets where you keep all your secrets. We've got to let him in because only insofar as we let that love in are we going to be transformed by him and, 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 and take on his likeness and begin to love the way he calls us to love. Folks, living in love, uh, a cross kind of love, it's not, it's not something we can possibly ever dream of doing on our own effort. On your mark, get set, go, love your enemies. It's not going to work. You can't crank this out. This kind of love has got to flow out of a relationship with Jesus where he is, in fact, our all in all. Where, he, in fact, we're trusting God to be our source of life and to be the judge of the world, even if it costs us our, our life. If we cling to Jesus more tightly than we cling to our own life, only then can we live at cost to ourselves if it's going to cost us our life. And so Jesus needs to be our soul food, our everything, our all in all. The, the motivation for our life. Let go of all false ways of getting life, all judgments, all attempts to try to impress people, to, to, to have a fancy house and a nice car and the nice clothes and, and the nice job and the great talents and how smart you are, blah, blah, blah. Worthless stuff, you guys, worthless. It, the second you die, it's all, it's all just dust in the wind. The only thing that goes on forever and ever and ever is the relationship you have with God. And, and, and it's about him letting you, him, him be the source of your everything your worth and self-esteem. And out of the fullness of that, out of the fullness of that, you overflow in love towards others. Now, as I ask the, the ushers to come forward and the worship team to come back up here, uh, we're going to be preparing ourselves for communion. And see, here's the thing about communion. It's the sign of the covenant.
Whenever God made a covenant, he gave us a sign. And the sign is there to remind us about what the covenant's all about. And so as we get ready, we're going to take an offering first, and then we'll go into to this time of communion. But be preparing your hearts for this. Let this bread and this, and this cup remind us that this is the flesh and blood of Jesus. Let it remind us that this is, this is the true God. The cross reveals the true God. Uh, let it remind us that the cross is to be at the source of our life, the source of everything. As we, take, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're eating Jesus, all right? We're, we're, we're ingesting this. And so let it be a, uh, express a commitment that we have to pursue a relationship with God on a daily basis where he is, in fact, the source of all that, that, that we are. As we take this cup and, 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 and this bread, let it serve as a reminder that all judgment belongs to God. Because the cross is the expression of God's judgment. God himself bore his own judgment. And so we can leave all judgment to God because he's taking care of it all on the cross. And so we can let go of all judging. All judging. He doesn't need us to protect society from the evil people. No, we are the worst of sinners. We can let go of all that and just commit to love. And as we take this bread and drink this cup, let it serve as a reminder of not only our own worth, unsurpassable, unconditional worth before God, but the worth of every single person we'll ever encounter and ever see. That's our commitment as kingdom people. Let's prepare our hearts. Abba, Father, as we go into this time of worship, I pray your spirit would invade us, your love would just baptize us. Uh, Lord God, that you'd saturate us and transform us to look like Jesus, carrying the cross, dying on the cross for our worst enemies. We would, in fact, be people over whom you reign, and therefore people whose lifestyle reflects Calvary in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord, such love. Such love, such love, such love. Such love, such love. Woo! Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. love like 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 christ uh, loving enemies it's when you really trust this is the faith that energizes love you trust it really you are really held like that and and uh, he'll never let you go when that is our everything and our all so close and that's where we're going to be throughout eternity and even death can't affect that then then, then you've got nothing to lose and that's how we're supposed to be we, we got nothing to lose we got nothing to lose we got nothing that's it we the one thing, the one thing that's all important, you've got, and it can't be taken from you. Yeah. And and when that is your all in all, you can love with abandon. <laughs> you can just, yeah, you can just pour it out like like God did, like God did. Wow. Mm. And then, then we manifest the character of Abba Father, and that is the reign of God. That's the kingdom. Okay. Well, I am going to just close with a little commission here, and I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, please come forward and, and pray with these folks. That's why they're here. They would love to minister to you. Uh, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, come up here and talk to these folks about what, what, what that's about. And uh, join the rest of us being held so close. Uh, and he'll never let you go. Praise God. Don't forget about the Pebble missions trip. Stop by and Say hi to those folks and tell them that you're going to stay in solidarity with them and support them as the Lord leads. Uh, We want to be with them. So as we leave this place, we call on you, Holy Spirit, to help us to remember to be a people who live the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life, and to get all of our worth and and life and security from knowing that we're held in that cross-like love and that will never, ever change. Uh, and, and may we be, leave here with a people, being a people who, having that as our identity, uh, can then just let go of all judgment, all accusation, and just love, and just serve, and sacrifice for others. This is our calling. This is what we're called to do. This is who we are. Praise God. Holy Spirit, empower us to be that as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, and all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go and love on the world. Love on the world.